Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The members of our political staff who've drawn the short straws today are Harry McGee and Cormac McQuinn. Good morning to you both, gentlemen. Hi, Hugh. How's it going? Good morning, Hugh. Cormac, I'm going to go to you first because of our page one lead in the Irish Times this morning, and it's been a story that's been bubbling on through the week. The, the whole question of reintroducing uh, mortgage interest relief, which was which was wound down more than 10 years ago. Is that a really live political issue now? Well, it's it certainly, uh, Sinn Féin would, would have you think it is. They, they've been putting pressure on over a course of months now at this stage to, to bring back mortgage interest relief, obviously due to the series of increases in interest rates by the, the European Central Bank, the, the most recent of which happened yesterday, another, another quarter percent on, on the, the interest people are paying on mortgages and other loans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's Sinn Féin will be calling for it. The government have been resisting it, to be, to be quite frank. They're, it's it's massively expensive. The, the, the estimated cost of mortgage interest release for a full year is uh, $600 million. Uh, Sinn Féin are calling for a temporary and targeted uh, relief, uh, which they reckon will cost about $400 million. Still, still very, very expensive. And it goes against the kind of budgetary policy that we've seen from government over the last last couple of years, but particularly uh, at the moment with the, the big windfall of corporation taxes. They've they've been consistently saying that they don't want to bring in measures that will will you know end with massive recurring costs uh, into the fu- into future years. So uh, th- I th- I think uh, the the mortgage interest relief would fall into that category. Now it hasn't been ruled out. Uh, Tisha Cleo Ragger said yesterday that that is something that'll be looked at ahead of the budget. Uh, that's not good enough for Sinn Fein. They want they want direct support for for mortgage holders now. Uh, so even 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 if it's they they have a problem even with waiting until. October, which is a, it's a trend that we saw from last year as well, when they were frequently calling for, for measures prior to the budget. The government emphasis seems to be at the moment on other measures, measure, cost of living measures that help people in general, including mortgage holders, rather than direct supports to, to mortgage holders. That's that's definitely the, the mood music that's be, been coming out of government on this, you know, um, Tanisha Mial Martin was talking about in the doll yesterday when he when he was when he was arguing with Pierce Doherty about it, talking about all the cost of living measures that came in the the two hundred euro electricity bills, the free school books, the the uh, the reduced cost of school transport, the reduced cost of childcare, you know, reduced hospital charges, those, those sorts of measures that have been brought in at great cost over the last twelve months. I suppose hinting that these are the sorts of uh, things that the government will be looking at uh, when it when it comes to the budget this year. The, the once-off measures uh, that 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 can help people, albeit it mightn't be direct support for the mortgages. Not good enough for Pierce Doherty. He wants he wants people on variable and tracker mortgages as well as as those whose whose mortgages have been bought up by vulture funds to to get direct support through this uh, mortgage interest relief. 
there's a few things in, in that, Harry. One is, I, as I understand it, the, the government's response to that is that targeted measures targeted at certain categories of mortgage holders and not others would be very problematic, I think, both logistically and possibly legally, um, legally as well. But there are kind of broader questions. As I recall it, the winding down of this particular tax relief, uh, it did happen during the austerity years, but there was also an argument that it was a regressive form uh, of tax relief, which benefited some parts of societies uh, more than others. And looking at looking at this, you can know that once it comes in, it's going to be very hard to get rid of it. So as Cormac says, it's a it's an ongoing commitment. And maybe most important of all, we hear so much about generation rent now, and we hear so much of the divide between people who do own property and those who don't, that giving a big lump of cash to the people who do own it, many of whom are relatively well off, it, it, it surprises me. Well, it's a demographic that's technically known as the squeezed middle. You know, it's the people who are middle income, who are are the people who pay most of the taxes and who feel, for one reason or another, justified or unjustified, uh, that they're not getting uh, enough back. And I I think um, this, as a political strategy, has been a genius move by Piers Doherty. I mean, he has been beating the drum of mortgage interest relief for many months now. And no matter what the government do, in the budget or whenever they decide to broach this issue, it's going to be a win for Pierce Doherty. And he's, he's, he's taken ownership of this issue in the same way that he took ownership of the uh, insurance issue, uh, which he, he led off on, and also with some of the issues that he tackled the banks on as well. So in terms of people look at, F- at Sinn Féin's strategy in terms of the whole, you know, what's its economic strategy? Is it going to, you know... Uh, wash its own face? Uh, will the government be, be able to survive a, a sharp turn uh, to, to the left? But people sometimes forget that Sinn Féin isn't quite as left as is sometimes made out and that many of their uh, best uh, strategies in terms of political gain tend to be ones that are focused at the aforesaid uh, squeeze middle, uh, that, that section yeah, of I the find population. That, I, I do find that phrase a little exasperating because there are lots of people who are neither squeeze nor no, middle. It's, in it's, fact, they were the ones who benefit most, arguably, because they'll have yeah, the biggest it's, fanciest it's, houses and the biggest mortgages. Yeah, yes, it is. It's, it, it includes those. It's inclu- it includes people who have good incomes, uh, who, you know, I mean, it's, it's the same people who would benefit disproportionately from uh, the universal payments. You know, they don't need child benefit as much as somebody on no income, who is struggling to uh, to make ends meet. But it would be a very churlish thing for any politician to do to decide uh, to to abolish child benefit. Uh, Except that this is even more so because it's it's disproportionate because the bigger the mortgage, the bigger your relief. Uh, absolutely. And I've, in deference to Piers Doherty, he has said that it, he wants to introduce a temporary measure uh, that's targeted and that has a finite lifespan. He's talking about... Um, a, a, an overall cost of the Exchequer of about 400 million. Uh, Pat, I think, uh, in one of the pieces he was writing over the last day or two, was saying that once something is introduced, once the genie is let out of the bottle, it's always very difficult to let it in. So if mortgage interest relief, the concept or the notion of mortgage interest relief, relief is reintroduced in the Irish context, it might be very hard uh, to bring that particular uh, relief uh, to an end. So uh, they, it, they, the government or whoever brings it in might be biting off more than they could chew. And if you look at all of the cash that has been thrown at various political problems that have emerged in the past uh, and economic problems that have emerged in the last one or two years, all of them have been, uh, not all of them, but most of them have been once-off measures. You know, the windfall tax has allowed 
people supplements to, to, to meet their electricity bills over the winter, but that programme is now coming to an end. The difficulty with mortgage interest relief is that once you're introduced, it is something that might be recurring and that might be regular and that might have a an ongoing uh, um, cost to the exchequer. And if it's €400 million Euro a year at the start, you can be guaranteed that if it continues for a couple of years, the, the cost of it is going to rise, if not exponentially, will rise incrementally. So just from a pure maths uh uh, point of view, uh, I think the government are very reluctant to go down that road uh, because of the consequences that might flow uh, from that. But are there any tensions between the government parties over this issue? Because funnily enough, this Sinn Féin proposal, I could see on one level how it might, might be more attractive to Leo Varadkar um, uh, than to Michal Martin. Uh, very much so. No, there are people. I mean, if if you, it depends on what type of mortgage you have. So, for example, if you had a tracker mortgage. Uh, for many years, you start, you had the Willy Wonka golden ticket in terms of Irish loans because your 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 interest rates were essentially tied uh, to the ECB rate. The problem is that there have been seven uh, successive increases in the ECB rate. Uh, it went up 25 basis points uh, this week, so it's now I think at 3.25 percent. So there are people who are with non-bank lenders who are paying, you know, seven, eight, nine maybe even going into double digits in terms of the interest on their mortgage. So their monthly mortgage bill has increased exponentially. The government have been trying to look at it or to come at it from other ways as well. Michael McGrath told the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party during the course of the week that he has been speaking uh, to the central bank and also speaking to the to the established banks uh, to see if there's a way of dealing with this. He's been telling the established banks that they caused a problem in the first instance, that people wouldn't be with vulture mortgage companies uh, if the conventional banks had been doing their job properly 10 or 15 years ago. And he essentially framed it uh, in such a way that there was a moral obligation on the banks to bring those people who have gone back to to vulture uh, or who are with vulture companies or non-bank companies uh, to, to, to allow them come back and have a regular mortgage with a regular bank. So that's one of the gambits that he has been using. The Although other, history tells us that moral obligations don't cut much ice with the bank. No, not with not when it comes to, to money. Uh, the second thing is he has been talking to the central bank, looking at the rules that apply to non-banking lenders in the Irish context uh, to see if uh, they justify uh, the interest rates that are being charged to some customers at present. And he has asked the central bank to look at that and to take some action. But like a lot of other things, that's not going to be immediate. I think that's going to take some time. Well, it sounds like this is going to rumble on uh, into the autumn and up to the budget and, and, and perhaps beyond. And another story, a kind of related story, Cormac, which yourself and Harry both wrote earlier in the week, is about a question which has um, troubled a lot of people over the years, which is, well, more broadly, why is Ireland so expensive in general? Because it is one of the most expensive countries in the world, um, I think it's fair to say now. But specifically, why is house building so expensive? And some of that has to do with labour costs, some of it has to do with other things. People point at the planning process and various other systemic issues. But but this report that the two of you were working on this week was very interesting because it pointed to a couple of other issues I wasn't aware of up until now. Well, yeah, it's the cost of construction seems to be considerably higher in in Ireland than, than other places, according to uh, briefing materials for for provided to the government this week. Um, and one one of the reasons appears to be that uh, that the Irish uh, home buyer expects 
much higher spec houses, you know, the 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 en suites, the the fully floored houses, things to be everything to be ready uh, when when they move in, which which it seems, although I, I find it hard to believe, but it seems is not an expectation on the continent where where you could be moving into a, a shell of a building with with uh, with no ceilings and no floors, and you know you you have to fit it all out yourself. So I mean that that is one potential reason for it. But but I mean the other the other thing is it's it's been aside from all of that. It, you know, it's well known Ireland is at the end of of every supply chain, I suppose, and we have had supply chain difficulties ever since the pandemic, and then then with the the war in Ukraine. So that that is another uh, major factor that has been been uh, increasing. You know, adding to cost inflation for for construction in everything from from a person's home extension to a to new built houses to the National Children's Hospital. It's it the cost of construction in this country has just skyrocketed in the last couple of years. Brexit, of course, the other thing that that has contributed to that. So it's it's in a way it's it's kind of telling us what telling us what we already knew. Um you know whether what what it will mean in terms of anything the government can do about it. Uh, you know, it's it's it goes just goes into the the mix of the the seemingly interminable and uh, unsolvable problem of the housing crisis in this country, and and uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure what what can be done to tackle construction costs at, uh, at the moment, but it's it's just another it's another problem. Is there any possibility at all, Harry? That I mean, the, the, you know, the, those points which Cormac referred to the question of being at the end of the supply chain, the question of the very high labour costs in this country uh, are are known. I wasn't aware of this, you know, high spec delivery demand from the Irish consumer being being so different from say somewhere like Copenhagen, where we would think that standards would be quite high. Well, uh, obviously, you haven't been looking at enough Dermot Bannon <laughs> programmes on TV, you. I, I must because try harder. Every Irish householder seems to demand a B-Day and a walk-in wardrobe as the, as the minimum requirement. Yeah, that kind of surprised me a little bit. I think that when you dug down on the actual costs, the cost between Irish uh, constructed apartments and houses was not all that much different uh, from those in Berlin, Amsterdam, and Birmingham, I don't know why they chose Birmingham in England rather than London or Manchester, but Birmingham was the city that they chose over there. Yes, you could get costs that were up to 30% cheaper there, but that was because our labour costs were lower, so that was a factor, and that, that's nothing to do with spec. But most of it was to do with the uh, regulations and uh, uh, specifications that applied in each of those cities. As Cormac was saying, uh, for apartment buildings in other centres, they're kind of unfinished. You don't get light bulbs, you don't get fittings. Uh, the kitchens will be just fitted to a minimum standard. Uh, they won't have the bathrooms tiled. They won't even have the flooring in. In some places, you're, you're essentially, you walk into a concrete or a, a raw timber shell and then that's when they, they, the work commences in terms of doing it up. So once a person who's purchasing a house uh, puts all of that in... If I were in, a house, I would quite like that. I think they could make my own choices you could, in good time. Yes, but it, once you started rattling the piggy bank, I think you'd be left with exactly the same amount well, of Well, I just wonder, it sounds a bit like the way that business class used to be on airlines. They charge you an extra 500 quid for, a, you know, a, a metal knife and fork and a small, small bottle of wine. Yeah, but I don't think they're actually, I don't think specifications include kind of gold-plated taps, Hugh. I think they're just the okay. basic kind of light fittings, taps. Uh, I mean, uh, every house... When I was uh, uh, going into a starter house, I think the finishes that I saw were very, very basic indeed. So they don't even they don't even give that. So that that's one of the um, that that's one of the the factors. I mean, it just shows you that construction prices are higher uh, everywhere. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting was that Irish uh, um, house buyers and apartment buyers 
uh, want slightly bigger uh, apartments and houses. Uh, the specifications in the other centres allowed much smaller uh, apartments than are allowed in Ireland. So they they seem to be uh, comfortable with the notion of, of compact uh, living. And there have been moves in Ireland to reduce the size of apartments and houses. Quite controversial moves. Yes, and to, uh, well, we talked about the, the student departments in particular, and also to have kind of more compact development where you have a house uh, with very, very small garden, a kind of a stony batter type yard rather than a garden in order to increase the densities. And none of those have been easily got through, but they seem to be standard in most of the other centres at this particular juncture. Um, you've been writing as well about another story which was in the news this week, which is President Michael D. Higgins uh, has gone to war on economists, I think it's fair to say. I'm not sure if it's just Irish economists or economists around the world. I think, it, I think it's more the latter. That's the very simplified version of a speech which he gave a week ago to the uh, left-leaning think tank task. Um, and it was taken up in the newspapers and then some economists uh, Got a bit snappy about it. Where, did, where does it stand very now? Very snappy indeed. Where does it all stand now? Well, it, to me, the, the interesting thing was how the politicians um, would react to it. And they reacted to it as they've reacted to every Michael D. Higgins speech before. They just shrugged their shoulders and said, that's Michael D. And uh, they don't seem to have any objection uh, to uh, his speeches or his views. So it was a not exactly a well-worn Michael D. speech, but it's a theme that he has pursued frequently over the years, talking about economics uh, um, that's directed at the bottom line, neoliberal economics that's fascinated with the concept of growth. So growth was his big theme in the speech that he gave last Saturday. And he was saying that uh, that this, this uh, unending pursuit of growth is counterproductive and uh, creates a two-tier society in which those who are poorest and those who are most vulnerable will suffer uh, even more. So it was an attack on the whole notion of neoliberalism. He also uh, said that, for example, uh, that the the um, the notion of a circular economy or uh, uh, the ecological factors that play into the economy are not given enough credence uh, in society. And he was particularly critical of third-level institutions uh, which he said uh, were teaching economics in a way that didn't take cognizance uh, of all the changes that have taken place in the world and the values uh, which he was espousing during the course of, of the speech. So he got some very, uh, he got some very, uh, he got a Pavlovian reaction from Stephen Kinsler from the University of Limerick and also from Seamus Coffey uh, in uh, the University of Cork. Uh, Kinsler said that they do all of those things. He said that the uh, the economics that Michael D. Higgins, the form of economics or the type of economics that Michael D. Higgins uh, uh, is speaking about is is no longer in date. And he said it might have um, it might have <laughs> been uh, something that was a debating topic 20 or 30 years ago when he was a child and Michael D. Higgins was in his pomp as a workaday politician uh, but has no place in the world at present. So that's how the argument was framed. The academic economist uh, versus Michael D. Higgins. Uh, politically, the only person who responded politically was Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Public Expenditure. And um, he essentially said that Michael D. Higgins was free to express his views. He said that Michael D. Higgins has studied economics. He knows economics. His views are certainly not out of date. And his contribution, he didn't say whether he disagreed or agreed with the contribution, but he said that every time that Michael D. Higgins speaks uh, about the economy, 
he makes a valuable contribution to the public uh, debate. And Pascal Donoghue said it's great to see somebody putting an issue like, you know, the nature of economics out there uh, for uh, public debate. They're uh, very nice comments from Pascal Donoghue, of course, but I mean, I somehow doubt the government is going to uh, drop its pursuit of, of economic growth uh, anytime soon, you know, so... You know, it's it's the president can can make make speeches to to think tanks and and all of that, but uh, you know, and he certainly has an audience and certainly has a lot of people respect his views, but it doesn't mean that the the government is is going to take any action whatsoever. Absolutely, it. Cormac. Absolutely. Well, I I mean, I I do wonder. I mean, uh, I mean, I was amused slightly by Pascal Donoghue's comments, as you say, he didn't uh, he didn't express an opinion on the on the content of 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 the speech at all. Uh, Irish Times readers, of course, will know that Pascal Donoghue who regularly reviews books on economics for the Irish Times. So, you know, we, we know that he knows whereof he speaks, as you would hope, for the for the job he's in. I have to say, listeners will be will be glad to hear that I read the speech. Um, I'm less glad about it myself. Um, it's uh, it's not the, the finest piece of prose I've I've read um, even today, uh, much less this week or this year. It kind of, it has the Michael D ineffable style to it in that it, it, it seems unnecessarily obscurantist to me at times and it throws in references to Plato and Aristotle make an appearance at some point for no good reason apart from a rather tortured simile as far as I can see. It refers to a, a range of economists, some of whom I've heard of, some of some of whom I haven't. But the basic point which it's making, I think you're right, Harry, is the basic point which, which Michael D. Higgins, as a, as a left of centre Labour politician has been making for his entire career, which is capitalism is not the solution, which is that we need a level of social cohesion and social progress and social justice in order to in order to be fair to everybody, in order to create a successful society. None of that is going to come as a surprise to anybody. But there's a thing about Michael D. And uh, you, you said earlier, the politicians just shrug their shoulders and say, that's Michael D. I mean, I, I do wonder sometimes, do people, you know, do people actually read this stuff? It's like everybody's very proud that Michael D can string more than three words together of of more than three syllables in the same way that they're proud that he's a poet. Nobody likes to talk too much about whether the poetry is any good. And maybe we don't talk enough about whether the speeches are that good either. Because to be perfectly honest, this really did not seem terribly intellectually impressive. Uh, you know, it's the, uh, the, the dread phrase hegemonic discourse popped up from time to time. I felt I was trapped in a lecture in a social studies department somewhere back in the in the 1990s and some of his critiques of the of the academy um, just didn't really ring true because the fact is the kind of point which he's putting forward will be very familiar to anybody who's made their way through a humanities or social studies course in any of our universities over the last 20 or 30 years. So, and in fact, to be honest, the speech itself, you know, well, it, it had, the, had, the, had the bang of a second-rate lecturer yeah. in a second-rate college in first year about it. And, and perhaps one argument could be that, you know, uh, a speech by the president doesn't have to be something that only people who have been through humanities courses and universities uh, can can comprehend. You know, it, a, a bit a bit more plain language might might be might be good sometimes as well. Well, indeed, indeed, Cormac, and and the, just the just just the last point on it, and this is not to be ad hominem or anything uh, about Michael D, but there is a very important political concept at the centre of this, as Harry already mentioned, which is the question in our in our current social and uh, environmental situation of really quite difficult concepts like, like 
degrowth and the circ- circular economy. And when you get down to the real politic, the dirty politics of this, um, one of the immediate critiques of that is that it's a pulling up the ladder uh, ideology for those who already have to prevent those who don't yet have having the things that those already have have. And so it's always a little bit rich when it comes from an elderly man in a well-tailored tweed suit who lives in a yeah, very big post-colonial residence in sweeping parkland and has been known to dabble a little bit in landlordism himself. Uh, well, okay. You said it wasn't going to be that hard. Attack. <laughs> I'd like to see what an ad hominem attack actually looks like, Hugh. <laughs> um, I mean, I think he, he is, makes a fair point in relation to growth because you can't have continuous, incessant growth because that is essentially a bubble and bubbles burst. And the e- 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 economies are, by their very nature, they're circular. You have a period of growth and then you have a period of recession, continued by a period of growth when we seemingly have learned all the lessons and we do exactly the same thing as we have done before. Uh, the concept of a circular economy and the the um, is is an interesting one, but it's a very hard one to sell. I, don't, I think one of the things psychologically that people don't want to hear is that their living standard in the future uh, is going to be somewhat less than it is at present. And the quality of life arguments that are proffered as compensation for that uh, don't seem to be of sufficient quality at present. It seems to me uh, when I listen to these debates uh, to convince enough people, you know, to to uh, sacrifice the second car or the second holiday in Spain or the second holiday home down in Skibbereen or wherever people might have it. But laying that aside, in relation to Michael D, he can be extraordinarily pretentious. That, that speech he gave last Saturday, he could have delivered that in 1996 as a Labour Party TD in the Dáil and it would have been almost the same word for word. He can be very pretentious. But at the same time, I've seen him speak to... Uh, country people at the ploughing championship and I've seen him at, at soccer games and at GAA games where he's interacting. So he's, he has... Absolutely, and so have I. He, That's yes. absolutely true. So he has an ability to, to be pretentious at times but he also has a, an extraordinary common touch and he can relate to people uh, on a one-to-one level, on a human level and that, that, that essentially is part of the reason for his uh, continuing popularity with the people and his electability. The other thing that people say cynically about politicians is they never criticise Michael D because if they criticise Michael D they're criticising somebody who's infinitely more popular than they are in the public eye. Yeah, we will We will leave it there. Um, <laughs> we, we should talk again about Michael D. I'm sure we will be talking to him because his presidency, um, I suppose it's on its, is it fair to say it's on its last lap now? Uh, 2025 is a good way to think about it. So he's, he's got, he's, he's got, Two years to two, go. Two years to go, yeah. Two years to go, yeah. As I say, we will leave it there. Um, just before we take a break, just to remind you, as always, that you can uh, sign up to subscribe to irishtimes.com where you can read lots of good writing, including um, by Pascal Donoghue on economic matters from time to time. Uh, just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. We'll be back after this. And you're very welcome back. Now, there is a major event uh, across the water uh, tomorrow, the coronation of King Charles III. And Harry, uh, as Stephen Collins remarks in our opinion section this morning, it's a historic Irish moment because it's the first time in well over a century, if ever, in fact, that the leaders of Irish political nationalism will be attending the coronation of a royal. Yes, <laughs> uh, I must say this story leaves me completely cold it's not because I'm a a, a flaming uh, Republican uh, well I, I would consider myself to be a Republican but just um, I, I am one of those people for whom who has no interest in the British royal family or in the coronation 
and the four hours or whatever that RT are going to devote in terms of coverage tomorrow, uh, I, I, I could tell you this, I will be elsewhere doing something else, paying little attention to it. So just, I mean, looking at the, the diplomacy and politics of it, I think the main, I think the Irish government was always going to be represented. I mean, the president is going, and as far as I know, I think the Taoiseach is going uh, as well. Stephen points out that de Valera uh, declined to attend in at the last coronation. Yeah, the last coronation was 1951. And I mean, Ireland was a republic at that stage. So um, perhaps he should have, um, because, um, you know, it's a, a head of state, or the the leader, the the political leader of a country, you know, respecting the the uh, coronation of a head of state of a, of a neighbouring country and and a close neighbour and in many ways a close ally as well. I mean, the most interesting thing, of course, is the fact that Sinn Fein uh, is going and they have choreographed uh, the uh, and prepared the way uh, for Michelle O'Neill's uh, um, attendance at the event in a very Sinn Fein fashion. I think um, they have probably put almost as much organisation into that announcement as the British royal family have put into the, all the events that will surround the crowning of, of Prince Charles. You know, they laid the way, they suggested it, and then over the past number of weeks, uh, they've let it be known publicly that Michelle O'Neill is, is going. And you can see how uh, Sinn Féin has evolved as a party uh, in that they, they, there has been very little reaction to it. There hasn't been any outrage, as far as I can see, a little bit from from the the um, marginal Republicans in in the north, uh, but very little reaction to it down here. Isn't there a sort and of logic? Isn't there a sort of logic to though to Sinn Féin's position anyway in the post Good Friday dispensation, where you know all the um, all the moves and the the debates which they've been initiating are being a large part of about Irish unity, in which there's a huge amount of discussion about how you accommodate the million people on these islands who uh, who give their loyalty to the to the British monarchy. That there's a there's a kind of inexorable logic in that. That therefore you go. You go to the coronation yeah, to mean, recognise those people's yeah. identity. I mean, once um, Shana Walsh made the, the video statement in 2005, I mean, the die was cast and a course was set. And uh, you're, you're quite right. I mean, all of that. The, 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 now, it took them a while to, to accept uh, when um, the Queen visited Ireland in 2011. Sinn Féin essentially boycotted it, except for uh, a Sinn Féin mayor in Cashel, a man called Brown. Um, I think it was Martin Brown was his name who decided that he would go and meet the Queen uh, and defied the the, um, the, the, um, the Sinn Féin edict. Afterwards, Sinn Féin had an internal debate. And I think that they recognised that, you know, a consequences of all the decisions that had been made from 1998 onwards in relation to Sinn Féin embracing the peace process, that they would have to deal uh, with the British government and with the British institutions and the British monarchy according to their own lights. And that's what essentially paved the way for Martin McGuinness uh, to meet the Queen on two occasions and for Sinn Féin as a party to, to deal uh, with the monarchy. So, um, yes, I think you're right. I mean, you know, a decision was taken and this, this is a consequence of a decision that was taken as far back as 1998. To follow up on that point, Harry, I think, I think Martin McGuinness's first encounter with the Queen was, was just a, a year after her visit to Ireland, you know, so it, it, was, they, it showed that Sinn Féin quite, learned quite quickly uh, that, you know, the, the pragmatic magnanimous route might, might be a better approach, uh, particularly if you're trying to, uh, to you know, reach out to the other community in Northern Ireland, and that's uh, it's 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 actually it's excellent politics out of Michelle O'Neill to be to be going to the coronation at a time when 
um, the parish hearing institutions in the North are not functioning. She is the First Minister-designate. She can show that she is reaching out to the other other community in Northern Ireland, uh, respecting their traditions uh, at a time when the, the Unionist uh, side, the DUP, uh, namely, are, are refusing to go back into power sharing. And we even saw a bit of it last year when um, when when uh, Queen Elizabeth II died and uh, and uh, King Charles visited the uh, the four nations of the United Kingdom and uh, he had he had a much more uh, you know friendly encounter with Michelle O'Neill than than he had with Geoffrey Donaldson, who who seemed a little bit out in the cold uh, at the time of that visit to, to Northern Ireland. So it's it's it just it's it's very good politics out of Sinn Féin, costs them almost nothing really to do it and uh, they, they they look good out of it. Yeah, there was a, there was a memorable moment, wasn't there, when um, when the new king actually seemed far more pleased to meet the leader of Sinn Féin than the leader of the DUP. Absolutely. Don, <laughs> Donaldson was in the background almost uh, during during that encounter and, yep. and didn't look terribly pleased about it. She's been impressive as as the northern leader of, of Sinn Féin and, I mean, Sinn Féin is preparing for government down here. So if they're preparing for government, they have to take on all the obligations and all the responsibilities of government, including things that they probably don't necessarily want to do, but realise that they have to do it. There was a commemoration for all those who have died uh, in the uh, cause of Irish freedom in Arbor Hill during the course of the week. It was attended by the president, the Taoiseach, the Tornishta. But to me, um, um, uh, Mary Lou Macdonald and Michelle O'Neill were both there as well on behalf of, of, of Sinn Féin. And, you know... I'm not saying looking very much at home because that's probably a clumsy way of describing it, but they didn't look in, in any sense out of place because there is a possibility that after the next election that it will be Mary Lou Macdonald who will actually be leading uh, that commemoration in, in Arbor Hill. So the, the, the course that they plotted back in the 80s and the 90s to follow a peaceful route, there are, there are responsibilities and obligations and consequences that flow from that. And we're seeing uh, the outworkings of those now, and uh, initially the outworkings would have been controversial, like the decision by, by Martin McGuinness back in 2012 to meet the Queen, uh, whereas now it's, it's people hardly even raise a, an eyebrow to it, as we saw in the past week with Michelle O'Neill's decision. Uh, to to go to King Charles's coronation. There is one other thing I I think noting about this. Like like you, Harry, I'm a Republican with a small R and not of the flaming variety. But I I don't think monarchy is really a particularly great way to run your system these days. But that's up to the people to the people involved. And I I won't be particularly watching with any great interest tomorrow. But. It does come at a certain moment in the history and the tra- trajectory of the United Kingdom, this particular historic event, because that's what it is. And you have the the the, uh, the ceremonial anointing of this slightly uncertain, unsure, uh, getting on for elderly individual as the public face of a country which seems to be slightly at a loss in terms of defining what its role is in in the modern world, in the post-Brexit years. So in a way, these these moments themselves can come to be seen as 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 signifiers of those kind of broader broader strands and threads as well. Okay. I agree with everything you say, but I, I will say to that, yes, I, I, I uh, agree. I, I'm trying to, I mean, he's, he, he's in his 70s now, so he... he Will will he be the kind of the twenty first century version of King, uh, who succeeded Victoria? Was it King Edward who succeeded Edward the Seventh? Edward He'd the been Seventh. hanging around for an awful long time as well. Yes, and he was and a bit naughtier than Charles. He was, but didn't make much of a, 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 a didn't make much of a mark. So he's he's following a, a monarch who has been who was there for 
75 years almost. So it's, it's, it's going to be difficult for him. Uh, we're living in a very changed uh, world and environment now in which the monarchy isn't held in the same esteem uh, as it was 75 years ago. In fact, it has been subject of such controversy in over the last 20 years that probably uh, it, it, its, its reputation is, is uh, besmirched. And then we have Britain, once a great empire, uh, which is is struggling at present and seems to be floundering, uh, not alone w- within the context of Europe, but in the context of the world. And I I think that um, I think Britain is 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 going to have to take very tough decisions over the next couple of years about its own future. I'm not saying that it's going to come back into into the EU, but I think that eventually I think it's going to have to make some kind of arrangement with the European Union that it will have a kind of you know, uh, it won't be completely uh, separate from it, but there'll be some kind of links or, or associate kind of membership uh, that will allow Britain to benefit from the EU. Because I think if Britain tries to uh, forge its way alone, I think it's going to find itself in difficulty economically and politically over the next couple of years. Right, we will we will leave it there. Um, so I take it none of us are going to be watching the coronation tomorrow. No. Um, what about you, Cormac? I, like, I'm amused by all of it. I... If I if I was a British taxpayer, I would be absolutely fuming that the the expense that is going into this thing, this pageantry and ceremony and pomp and literal gold and jewels, you know, it's it just I I can't comprehend it. I'm I'm angry on their behalf to be to be quite frank. So I I, I won't be watching the thing. I don't dispute that uh, RT should be showing it or whatever. It's a major news story, and a lot of people are interested. I, I suspect the, a lot of the Irish interest does. It's more to do the, 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 of the, with the soap opera of the, the Harry and Meghan type, uh, type stories than, than, uh, than any great abiding love for, for the British royal family. But uh, I, I just think it's mad. That's been too adamant a denial. I think he'll be sitting down tomorrow with his Queen Elizabeth <laughs> mug, his cup of tea, his, 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 his Kiwi tea. Uh, tea towel, yeah, his <laughs> I, jubilee I, I, commemoration. I, 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 I might record it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, at this uh, this time of week, we pick out stories that have taken our fancy from the Irish Times over the preceding seven days. Cormac, what took your interest? This is going to be a bit uh, self-congratulatory. I worked on this story a bit myself. Surely not. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the, the, I, I, have, I have been fascinated by the the kind of the growing diplomatic spat between Ireland and China. It was actually Pat Lee here, our esteemed political editor, that uh, that first reported uh, this this kind of shift in in Ireland's uh, approach to relations with China uh, along the lines of what the European Union has been doing, uh, talking about not decoupling from China but de-risking. You know, so it, it just it, just taking a step back from from what is you know when it comes down to an author- authoritarian regime where there are major concerns about the the rule of law as well as as human rights issues, albeit. It's also a giant, it's a superpower with massive economic opportunities, uh, but also an economic competitor. So it's, it's, it's just a, to take a cautious approach to, to relations with China. But Michal Martin gave a very strident speech, which is where I, where, what I attended earlier in the week, where, where he talked about this, this concept of de-risking, but also areas of big importance to Ireland, including Ukraine. He wants to see China put pressure on Russia to end the war. Um, you know the uh, the issue of of Taiwan. Ireland is very much uh, on board with the the one China one China policy, which which means that we do not recognise Taiwan's independence or or have diplomatic relations with the island. But 
but he doesn't want to see any any change to the status quo either. Uh, that's kind of in response to, I suppose, saber-rattling from China in recent times across the Taiwan Straits. Uh, and then uh, he, he raised human rights issues like like the, the, the well-documented uh, concerns about uh, the treatment of the Uyghur population in Xinjiang province. Uh, you know, so uh, we, we are reporting this morning um, that the... The Chinese embassy is not not terribly pleased with 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 this speech. They they have accused Mio Martin of making groundless accusations in relation to human rights. Um, they 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 talk about how he's over exaggerated the differences between China and Ireland and uh, and all of that. I mean, it, it's as I say, it's it's fascinating. It, there can be something a bit of the the, the Skibbery Eagle about Ireland making grand uh, policy announcements on. On a, on a country that has 1.4 billion people and nuclear weapons, but but uh, you know it's no harm to set out our stall as well in in terms of a very important relationship into the future and uh, one that that yes there's opportunity but there's also there's also concern there too. Yeah, I, I don't really think they're going to be quaking in the corridors of power in Beijing over this, but it, I think it is interesting in terms of a, a, a realignment across the EU in terms of its position vis-a-vis China, which is quite a which is which is definitely uh, quite quite a big issue. Um, uh, the story that grabbed my attention this week was there's a major major American visitor. I think everybody everybody knows his name. He's a really significant figure. He means a lot. A lot of people think he's he's fantastic. A lot of people think maybe it's time to say goodbye to him. But that's enough about Bruce Springsteen because Donald Trump was all. Was also in Clare, and we sent Jack Horgan Jones. That's why he's not here today. He has been down uh, in the uh, Dunebeg Golf Course owned by Donald Trump. Um, the former president and his son Eric Jr., who runs, I gather, most of the Trump Organization's golfing golfing activities, was there. Uh, one of the things I was really taken by was how open he's, how available he seemed to be. Uh, very unlike actually the the visit of the current president Joe Biden only a few weeks ago. He was throwing out quotes left, right, and centre. He seemed to be um, perhaps prevaricating about how long his golf drive was um, and making various other claims and responding to questions about the very um, high profile and sensitive um, case of alleged sexual assault rape, in fact, which is which is currently proceeding against him. Um, well, it's a def- defamation case arising out of that accusation currently proceeding against him in the United States. He provided great, great copy for Jack. You, you got a sense, Harry, reading it, that Jack had kind of wandered through the looking glass into this this um, this in Wonderland world of the Trumps in in West Clare. Well, he he um, he he did because uh, he was staying there, and this great line from Through the Looking Glass about the king talking to the knave, and he said, "Tell me your story and don't be nervous, or I'll have you executed immediately." <laughs> but Jack did uh, show he showed no nerves. He was nerveless, and he did ask all the questions. Thing, the thing about American politicians that distinguish them from our crowd is, and the British crowd is that you can throw any question at an American politician, no matter how outrageous, and they just take it and answer it straight out. That there's there's a kind of an inbuilt uh, aggression in their DNA and their double helix uh, that they just seem to take to be a standard. So I was surprised at not Jack. Jack, of course, always phrases his questions in a in a very uh, uh, professional way, but. I'm surprised at some of the questions that were being thrown and just the nonchalance with Donald Donald Trump and Eric Trump. Uh, um, I mean, this uh, is particularly them. true of Donald Trump, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like WWF. I mean, every time you see him, it's like looking, you know, that, that, that worldwide, that wrestling stuff, which is all kind of... WWE, I think. You'll dub, whatever it's yep. called. It's like that. It's all kind of shouting and roaring and uh, over-the-top stuff. There are, of course, famous clips of Donald Trump actually taking part in WWE uh, mm. wrestling. So, uh, you know, that's a very good <laughs> there comparison. There you go. 
Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I was. It was great. I mean, it was brilliant reporting by Jack, who's kind of a machine. I mean, the stuff that he produced and the quantity of stuff he produced was just mind-boggling. Yeah, I don't think any journalist in the era of ChatGPT was to be described as almost like a machine. But yeah, yeah. no, I think I think he did a, I think he did a great job. What did you pick, Harry? I, I picked Finton's um, column this week. I mean, this week his column was just super. And what Finton does is when he does deep research for his columns and tells you something that you never knew before, the outcome is always extraordinary. So this week he picked a a man called John Mitchell, who I didn't know very much about, other than. He lends his name to a very famous GAA club uh, situated in the town of Tralee, one of the famous uh, GAA clubs along with Austin Stacks and Kearns Raleigh and Niguel, uh, one called John Mitchells. And I didn't really know much about him. Uh, but Finton wrote uh, his story today or this week in his column and it was extraordinary. And he exposed him as a, an extraordinary racist and uh, brought up issues about whether GAA clubs should, com- should be commemorating uh, uh, people like John Mitchell. He was an Irish nationalist, but he was also a fanatical uh, racist and took the Confederate side in the Civil War. Uh, he had kind of, as Finton said, he had white supremacist, uh, uh, supremacist uh, zealotry and uh, he quotes some of the more outrageous things he said in relation uh, to those of a uh, different race. And what I found to be really interesting about it and was something that I wasn't aware of uh, was that um, Arthur Griffith, uh, one of the great founding fathers of our state, uh, idolised Mitchell uh, for this very reason, as as Finton writes. He, he indignantly, I'm quoting Finton now, and he indignantly denied that Mitchell's racism needed to be excused as if excuse were needed for an Irish nationalist declining to hold the Negro, his peer, in right. And he praised Mitchell for liberating the cause of Irish nationhood from the theory that black equals white. Now, you do sometimes have to give a little bit of latitude uh, for things that occur in the past uh, when there would have been standard views or societal views that people ascribe to uh, that would not be acceptable now. But, you know, the extremism of Mitchell's views was shocking. And I was also shocked that Arthur Griffith uh, subscribed so strongly to it. And it certainly has coloured uh, my opinion of Arthur Griffith. It was a brilliant column. I think it was one of the best columns I've read from Finton for, for, for a long time. And I think it's, if anyone hasn't read it, I think you should sit down and take, you know, the 10 or 15 minutes it takes to read that column. I think it's a tribute to Finton that we can refer to him as Finton throughout without pointing out that Finton O'Toole, he is the only Finton in the Irish Times. He is, isn't he first, he? He's first name. Uh, and he's been doing, I mean, uh, he, he has been writing columns for 35 years now. Mm. And I mean... They're not always amazing, but I mean, the consistency of the quality it's, of the it's, it's extraordinary. is extraordinary. We should say that this particular story, the reason why he wrote this this week was because of a, a, another story last week, which is about the denaming of the Barclay Library in, in Trinity after, a, a, I understand, a process of debate because of his, uh, the, the, um, the 18th century philosopher George Barclay, who um, was originally from Ireland and a fellow of Trinity and was also a slave owner. And it is also reported um, a, a, a an arguer in favour of, of chattel slavery. So that, that library has been denamed and perhaps starting, you know, a political process, which is, you know, which is been pretty significant in other countries, hasn't it, in terms of looking back at, at histories of, of places, colonial institutions like Trinity, for example, but also Finton very cleverly turns it around into questions which Irish nationalism maybe has to ask itself too. Yeah, and I mean, if I were in Tralee and if I were playing for John Mitchells, I really, I mean, you know, how, how much 
does anybody who plays for John Mitchells know about the history of the person who founded the club? But I, I think armed with that knowledge, I, I'd, it, it would put a, an element of doubt into my mind were I a member of John Mitchell's JA club in, in Tralee, County Kerry. Right. We shall leave it there for today. Thanks very much to Harry and to Cormac for joining us. Thanks to our producer, uh, John Casey, and our engineer, JJ Verna. We're going to be back very soon after the weekend. But until then, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.